the way that people think and therefore make decisions is changing. A few weeks ago, a global march was held with thousands of people marching through the streets of major Australian, American and European cities. And the march was called the March for Science. The whole idea was to champion an evidence-based approach to decision-making in public and political spheres. What were they reacting against? I mean, kind of, isn't it obvious that decisions should be made on the basis of evidence? Why take to the streets? Well, a month ago, the Weekend Australian Inquirer magazine ran an article entitled A New Secularism Thrashes Tradition. Progressive, mor- Sorry. Progressive uh, morality is elbowing out Christian values. The author, Paul Kelly, wrote, quote, As Christians celebrate Easter under threat and persecution in many countries, Christian tradition faces erosion in Australia from an array of forces, including, he wrote, from, quote, the rise of an alternate, progressive morality. Continuing the quotation, the new morality arises from neither dogma nor revelation. Its focus is diversity, human rights, self-expression, and identity politics. It is a set of values and a way of relating to others. Unquote. The way that we are making decisions is changing. And I'm not just talking about Australia, although I am certainly talking about Australia, but I'm also talking about the entire English-speaking world, Western Europe, um, certainly the states of the former Soviet Union, maybe Africa as well, I don't know. All over the world, the way that we are thinking and making decisions is changing. And last year, The Economist ran its cover article, The Art of the Lie, Post-Truth Politics in the Age of Social Media. And post-truth politics is about what Donald Trump and about what Vladimir Putin do and do well and do better than anybody else and to use plain language, what they do is lie. But they're really good at it. To unpack that, what they do is that they constantly affirm things that aren't true as though they were true, or make something up and call it true, or undermine and contradict something that is plainly true. Nowadays, it's all about fake news. Making fake news, such as faked interviews of witnesses of Ukrainian atrocities, a a faked news article faked by state-controlled Russian media, or calling real news fake news, as Donald Trump does, sledging and undermining the iconic journals of his own nation, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Financial Times, and, and accusing them of making stuff up. Isn't that funny? Donald Trump accusing the Washington Post of making stuff up. The Economist described how in the former Soviet Union, in the Soviet era, when the government or the KGB lied to the populace through the press, 
great care was taken to make sure that they could prove what they said was true and to disprove anything that might undermine their lie. It really, really, really had to have the appearance of truth. But nowadays, nobody cares. Putin doesn't bother. He doesn't even try to look as though he's telling the truth, and neither does Trump, because it's irrelevant. The article explains, it's a really good article, the article explains that both men are desperately popular, at least by a sizable minority within their countries, if not by the majority, they're desperately popular, at least amongst some, because they have a particular gift. The gift of saying exactly what many people think ought to be true, even if it isn't. It feels true, and therefore it ought to be true, even if the facts say it isn't true. And that, that's what makes their statements credible, or at least to some powerful. They are saying what people think ought to be true, what they feel to be true, and feelings trump facts. Pun intended. A new way of making decisions is fast emerging. A new way of making decisions in government and in the public sphere, and we need to understand it. It seems to have little to do with truth and little to do with facts. So what is it all about? Well, today we consider a third topic under the title of this topical sermon series, Clear and Present Danger. And the topic that we're considering today is political correctness. Political correctness is um, the term that I've given to this new ethical system. Um, the term political correctness actually is quite old. It's been around for a long time. It dates back at least as far as 1793. However, it became popular in the 1990s. Uh, and it emerged then in the 1990s as a phrase, usually pejorative or, or, or meant ironically, and it was a phrase that meant to describe any language, policy, or measure that worked too hard at not causing offence or righting some social ill with respect especially to disadvantaged or minority groups in society. Um, for example, if, um, if at university, say, in the 1990s, a new staff um, hiring policy emerged in the 1990s, if it was described as being politically correct, what that meant was that it was excessively concerned with such things, with, with, with um, ensuring the rights of the disadvantaged or minority groups. With respect to our discussion today, however, I think we can broaden the definition of political correctness to include the new progressive morality that Paul Kelly was talking about in The Weekend Australian. So today, I'm considering political correctness as an ethical system, a way of making decisions in mainstream political discourse and in the media and at schools and universities, which are always the front line for social change. It is an ethical system in which the highest virtue is not causing offence. Thou shalt not cause offence, especially with respect to anyone perceived to be disadvantaged, disempowered, or belonging to a minority. How can this new system be characterised 
Well, political correctness is a product of the postmodern mind. It's, uh, the postmodern mind instinctively distrusts institutions. And above all, it distrusts the notion of truth. To many postmodern thinkers, there is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as objective truth. And that may be true for you, but that doesn't make it true for me is a statement that somehow makes sense to the postmodern mind. And perhaps you've heard somebody say that to you in all seriousness. Just because it's true for you doesn't make it true for me. No, at best now all truth is subjective and experiential. You've got to feel that it's true and you have to have experienced as it tr- uh, to be true before you can receive it as true. Political correctness is therefore a a way of making decisions, an ethical system in which personal experience and in particular feelings trump empirical data and in particular facts as authoritative. What matters is not whether something is true or not, but rather whether it feels true or not. The feeling that something ought to be true is as powerful as whether or not it is true. And political correctness, as Paul Kelly pointed out, a lot of it's to do with identity. The new human right is the right to create and maintain for yourself your own identity as sacrosanct. What are the strengths of political correctness? Well, actually, political correctness has some very considerable strengths. I mean, obviously it does, otherwise it wouldn't succeed. Um, Political correctness is a recognition of diversity and multiculturalism. Because, after all, we are not all white, male, middle-aged, and middle-class. Although, in fact, we should should note that the person delivering this talk is all four. Political correctness is for broad-based diversity and inclusion. I mean, just watch, episode, just watch anything on SBS for any amount of time. It's all about broad-based diversity and inclusion. And that's a great thing. It's a really important thing. It's good. Political correctness is passionate in its hatred of all prejudices especially racism and sexism. I mean, just go to any film coming out of Hollywood now, and it champions the hatred of racism, sexism, and any other form of what it perceives to be prejudice. And that's a great thing. Radical inclusion, that's a kingdom thing. So these are very powerful and they're good. Political correctness is especially um, hateful, of any prejudice against minorities. And that's an important thing. That's a good thing. Political correctness is the ultimate democratization of ethics and morals. It allows for the fact that, to a very considerable degree, we cannot ask others to be bound by our own morality or worldview. And probably, in the public sphere or in our Uh, Houses of Parliament, that is a good thing. We need to acknowledge that we differ with respect to basic worldview and morality. Political correctness is correct 
in seeing that human beings do not know things objectively. Everything we know, even the things we know to be true, we know subjectively. And political correctness' highest aim is to protect and enshrine human dignity through tolerance, through tolerance as the mechanism by which we'll all be able to live together in peace and hopefully therefore prosper. In our age and in our times, we've seen the rise of political correctness as a force to be reckoned with because in addition to enshrining postmodern beliefs about truth, it also enfolds our ever-increasing value that we place on identity. It's so important, identity. For centuries, millennia, for as long as we've been around, however long we've been around, for human beings, basically, the story so far has been about survival. And we all made decisions about who we married and what we did for a living and where we lived and and what we did. We all made the basic life decisions on the basis of survival. The desire to meet our physical needs as best as possible so as to flourish and thrive and not die of starvation so as to accumulate material wealth and increase family. They were the indexes by which survival could be measured. I have a huge house and a large family. I must be doing well. For anyone born, however, if anyone born in the one-third world in the, in the past half century or so, we, take it, we actually we just take it for granted that our material needs are going to be met. It's not about survival anymore. It's not about whether or not I'm going to go hungry and die of starvation, but rather about who is going to win my kitchen rules. Life, it would seem, is not really about survival anymore, but about identity. We make decisions about jobs, marriage, where we're going to live and what we're going to do on the basis of our desire to differentiate ourselves from others, to create a unique identity that sets us apart and yet has the envious approval of our peers. This psychological need being met as best as possible so that we can flourish and thrive. And the index of success is the number of likes or friends we have on Facebook. How well is our identity doing? And the most precious resource when it comes to identity in the the politically correct world, the most precious resource is the identity of victimhood. The identity of being a persecuted minority. Um, For my sake, my first experience of being startled by political correctness as an ethical system came about 15 years ago when I was a chaplain at a university college in Melbourne. And one evening I was talking to one of the students, the residential students at this college, and she explained to me that she thought that the health warnings on packages of cigarettes were wrong evil and discriminatory. She wouldn't have used the word evil, but she thought they were wrong and bad. And at first, I couldn't understand what she meant. Actually, what I needed to know was that she had a sister who had been born profoundly disabled. The health warnings on cigarette packets offended this student because they said that smoking could cause 
health defects to unborn children. But that meant, as far as she was concerned, that to be born different was to be born less. Therefore, she felt that she was being told that her sister, who had been born profoundly disabled, was an inferior being because she was born disabled. Therefore, that kind of message is wrong and discriminatory. And actually, from the point of view of feelings and identity, that makes sense. But it also renders unethical, in other words, wrong, any attempt to warn pregnant women about any danger to their unborn child for fear of offending people who have been born with birth defects. Interestingly, uh, in the last few years, two Christian publications that we stock here at St. Barnabas, Eternity Magazine, which is published by the Bible Society and you can get from our welcome table, and The Messenger, which is published by the Diocese of Perth and you also can pick it up from our welcome table, um, both Christian publications have carried articles by physically handicapped persons who claimed that any desire on the part of God or God's people, any desire to heal them, was patronizing and wrong. They don't want Jesus to heal them, thank you very much. We are grateful, the articles said in effect, we are grateful and and happy to be blind, deaf, or wheelchair-bound, and to continue to be blind, deaf, or wheelchair-bound. For others to want to heal them was an imposition, was the point of the article. Why? Well, they made some very good points. One point that they made was that they were aware that their physical disability came with hidden advantages. For example, the heightening of other physical senses, such as hearing, or perhaps a unique and different point of view and therefore special insights into life not given to other people. That's, that's a wonderful blessing that's come out for them. But I think the second reason is probably more important, and that was that given that their physical disability was not a threat to their survival, it had become for them an important part of their self-identity. It was who they are, and to threaten that was to abuse them. So I think we can start to list some weaknesses and some dangers of political correctness. In a sentence, political correctness threatens rational debate, reasoned argument, appeal to empirical evidence and therefore science. Political correctness threatens freedom of speech and freedom of political and religious conviction. It is fundamentally corrosive to the foundations of Western culture. It has been widely noted that political correctness is a real and present threat to the Western value of freedom of speech. This is because under political correctness, If what you have to say offends me, then you have committed a hate crime irrespective of whether the thing you said was true or not. It's how it makes me feel that counts. Um, There is a debate at the moment uh, in the United States 
Um, and it's coming to Australia, and the debate is about trigger warnings, which you may have heard about. Um, a trigger warning is a warning given by a lecturer or a tutor at the start of any presentation at university. It is a warning that some of the content may be distressing, emotionally disturbing, or may trigger fear or anxiety. Trigger warnings, as far as I can make out, almost certainly have a legitimate and important place at the start of lectures and seminars across all kinds of disciplines. I mean, if a lecture contains explicit photographs of crime scenes or descriptions of the abuse of children, you might like to know in order that you can be prepared. The difficulty, though, is that in the United States, and over this issue, people are getting hurt. This is being fiercely contended in public demonstrations where people are literally hitting each other over this issue. It's so contentious because to vast numbers of American young people, if coarse content is emotionally disturbing or triggers fear and anxiety or puts them in the uncomfortable place of having to question what they believe, then that coarse content is totally unacceptable. Students are moving to censor the content of the courses they've signed up to. And they're deadly serious about that. And if you're old like me, you're laughing or nodding your head because <laughs> this doesn't make sense to us. But to the young people of America, this does make sense. Students are bringing in censorship of lecturers because from the perspective of political correctness as I've defined it today, the lecturer is abusing them if they are making them feel uncomfortable. Political correctness ultimately threatens to close down vigorous debate. And we, we can just, I'm going to talk about this next in my, a lot in my next sermon, but political correctness really does, it, it is in totally intolerant of any form of open measured debate as we've come to understand it in, in Western society. And so political correctness moves fiercely to close down any reasoned or rational debate over any controversial issue, issues like euthanasia, sexual morality, divorce, abortion, same-gender marriage, issues which do and will radically shape and reshape our culture and have profound social and economic ramifications. To quote Paul Kelly again from the Enquirer, April 15, the Western secular democratic state was founded on a negotiated harmony between secularists and Christians about ultimate questions. The model allowed homage to both God and Caesar. Contrary to current misconceptions, the secular state was neutral between believers and non-believers and between different believers, a system that allowed religion to flourish. The laws of the state and the laws of the church coexisted in a tolerated and often fruitful settlement that facilitated a successful society. But this is now collapsing. Unquote. A couple of years ago, I was talking to the chaplain of a uh, local state high school. Um, it is a very local state high school and one that prides itself on its tradition of academic achievement, 
and cultural achievement. Uh, it is a top-notch local state high school. Unfortunately, though, this school in recent times has moved into fundamentalism. The leadership of the school is secular fundamentalist. Even though the chaplain occupies an historic position as chaplain, she is not allowed to publicly mention God. She is not allowed to publicly pray. She is not even allowed to encourage students to pray. And all of those things are, of course, fundamental and inherent to the task of a chaplain within an institution. That the school is secular is fine. I have no argument with that. The state is secular. In other words, neutral on philosophical and spiritual issues. That the school will not tolerate any staff member advocating any other philosophy than secularism is not simply the school maintaining a secular stance, but rather it has become a fundamentalist state. This is political correctness. Under political correctness, scientific communities and religious communities will begin to stand apart more and more as communities inherently based upon a vision of authority that is outside of the individual. And political correctness is exceedingly hostile to the notion that authority is anywhere other than within the individual. So scientific and religious communities will come under increasing threat. Science appeals to what they call objective fact, by which scientists mean the results of replicable experimentation interpreted without fear or favor or bias. Religious communities appeal to sacred books, which they receive as revelation, things revealed by God that could not otherwise be known. So that God's morality becomes of critical importance in any decisions we might want to make. Political correctness is vehemently hostile to both ways of thinking, religious and scientific. That's why, amongst others, scientists around the world feel it necessary to take to the streets to champion something that only a few decades ago used to be obvious that decisions about policy ought to be based on an evidence-based approach to argument. How are we to react to all of this as Christians? Well, I thought I might start to answer this question by considering Jesus and Pontius Pilate. As we heard today in the Bible readings, at one point Jesus answers Pilate with, You say that I am a king? In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. <laughs> what is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews. From our cultural perspective, it's easy for us to kind of figure that Pilate is some jaded, cynical politician who's heard it all before and thinks that everything is just spin. But that's not exactly what Pilate is saying. It would be anachronistic to think that way about Pontius Pilate. He's, he's, he's not reacting like a cynical politician. What Pilate is saying is something we may not be familiar with. What he's saying is, hey, I thought we were talking about being king. I thought we were talking about power. 
Why bring truth into that? I can't see its relevance. Of course Pontius Pilate knows what truth is. Everybody knows what truth is. He just doesn't see the relevance to truth in a discussion about kingship. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is appealing to truth as a source of authority. That's what Pilate doesn't get. Now, you, you might have, like I do, you might have some Greek friends, and they might regularly point out to you that the ancient Greeks invented democracy. That's kind of true. Um, the ancient Greeks experimented with democracy, and they claimed to have invented it, which is true, but they couldn't make it work. They abandoned it. Um, and what's not often mentioned is the fact that they abandoned it because their democratic processes just got bogged down. And they got bogged down, in fact, because politicians did just make stuff up as they went along. They were rhetoricians. It was all about the rhetoric, the fanciness of the speech and the complexity of the argument in order to simply win the debate. The prize, in other words, went to the biggest liar. What they were involved in was pre-truth politics. And that's what leadership, that's what power, that's what being in charge has universally been about all of these centuries and through all cultures. Being a leader is being able to make other people obey your will. Being a leader is about knowing what must be done and making others do it. Only cultures heavily influenced by the Christian gospel depart from that otherwise universal law. Leaders, when they experience the gospel, leaders become servants. An ironic, bizarre inversion. Leaders become servants. In fact, in the Western democratic tradition, we call government leaders Ministers, which means servant. Because suddenly, after the example of Jesus, leadership is not about, um, not about making people obey your will, but rather leadership is about serving others, not serving yourself. And hand in hand with that reversal as to what it means to be a leader, this inversion of understanding of leadership, of what it means to be king, comes with it, it must come with it, comes with it, the idea that truth has authority. Only cultures and societies heavily influenced by the Christian gospel see truth as authoritative. In other words, if a leader is caught lying, his or her leadership is suddenly in jeopardy. And that's the way it used to be in English-speaking countries, in England, in Australia, in Canada, in the United Kingdom. If, if a government minister was caught lying, they were deemed unfit for office. You know, I mean, imagine today if somebody said to Donald Trump, with respect to what you've just said, Mr. President, prove it within three days or hand in your letter of resignation. You'd just be laughed at. But... In cultures influenced by the Christian gospel, truth has authority. We expect and demand our leaders to speak the truth. Why does truth have authority uniquely amongst God's people? Well, for many good reasons. Firstly, God is truth. God is the truth. 
and God is true. God is the source of all truth and God never lies because he never needs to lie. In contrast, Satan is a liar. Of him, Jesus said, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. Therefore, basically what I'm saying is it's only to be expected, indeed it's one of the first things to be expected, that when a nation or a society or a culture moves away from God, truth as a currency of authority is degraded. And that is happening before our very eyes. How can we respond to this? Well, truth in the New Testament is actually a whole lot more than simply the idea of being correct or right. Uh, Truth is a person. Jesus is the truth. And the gospel is the truth. People who have rejected the gospel in the New Testament have rejected the truth. That's not to say that they've rejected something that happens to be true. No, more than that, it's to declare that they have rejected truth. They have rejected the truth. And on that basis, their lives fundamentally are based upon a lie, a deception, a delusion, something that isn't true. And in the Bible, there is always a very tight link between truth and freedom. The gospel is... As we've sung this morning, the gospel is true, the gospel is freedom. Jesus is the truth, and he came to set us free. Jesus makes the link when he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Conversely, lies, deceptions, delusions, they just harm people. They just enslave people. They just inevitably lead to destruction. But when we are in relationship with Jesus, who is the truth, the life, and the way, relationship with Jesus enables us to come to grips properly, not only with spiritual truth, but indeed with all truth, because all truth is God's truth. That's why science and medicine have flourished in cultures heavily influenced by the Christian gospel because all truth is God's truth and truth has authority and you can speak the truth even when your boss doesn't like it. Science, medicine and democracy all stall in places where fear of man rules, where you can no longer speak the truth for fear of offending someone more powerful than you. So that, what is, what is the temptation here? Well, the temptation here, obviously, the temptation is the temptation to lie. Why would anyone lie? Because they are living in the fear of man rather than living in the fear of the Lord. Political correctness as an ethical system is a new form of slavery or perhaps an old form of slavery in new clothes. It represents people choosing to live in bondage to the real or imagined feelings of others. But we are not to live that way. 
The church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We have a role to play in the world to speak the truth. The Lord be with you.